Let's all stand together at this time. We're going to be looking in Revelation chapter 7. We're in the middle of a series of messages that I simply called about heaven. About heaven. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might, be to our God forever and ever Amen. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. This passage is set in the midst of God's revelation of his coming judgment upon the earth and humanity. Uh, he would alternate scenes as you go through the book of Revelation. There would be a scene of judgment, something happening on the world, followed oftentimes by a scene in heaven. And it was almost as if John would be down here on the earth and he'd uh, uh, dealt with all of that for long enough and God would say, come up here, let's get a breath of fresh air. And Revelation chapter 7 is one of those times. We're not going to take a detailed exposition of this passage tonight or this morning because we are uh, uh, looking at uh, our, the cold concept of heaven. Uh, but uh, we will pick up a few things from this passage and then move along to some others. Uh, as we consider more uh, about heaven. In this passage, it's almost like God opens up the windows of heaven and lets us peek inside. What do you see? Well, the throne that is so often mentioned in heaven is, of course, the first thing that's mentioned in this passage. The Lamb. That was John's favorite expression in the book of Revelation for our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb. Is there. The angels, the elders, the living creatures, other passages call them the seraphim. Seraphim. Uh, they were horrible creatures, guardians of the holiness of God, awesome, awe inspiring. They were designed to strike terror into the heart of anyone who would approach the throne of God. Seraphim. Then there was a vast host of people. Nobody could number. I know a lot of folks who's in that crowd. And you do too. More every day. More all the time. Now this crowd was from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue... Uh, all around this planet, people from everywhere, what were they doing? Well, they were hollering, <laughs> shouting, if you prefer a more uh, sanctified term. They were hollering, apparently in unison, in unison, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, being a, many, many years ago, being involved in athletics, I remember what it was like to pull out on the basketball court. 
when everybody was shouting in unison. Uh, one time that stands out in my mind, we played in a little bitty place called Oklahoma. Uh, they had a gym that I literally could not stand at the sidelines. They put you back to the wall and my feet would hang out over the line. You had to turn your feet sideways to get out of bounds. I mean, it was a small gym. Uh, there was a young man there named Ricky, went on to play for the Razorbacks. Some of you would probably remember him, but I'll tell you what, when they put Ricky in the game, that place lit up. Ricky, Ricky, Ricky. I mean, you could just feel the vibrations in the building. I was glad I didn't have to play him. Uh, we lost out, so <laughs> they went a little bit further along the line that year, but... Uh, Maybe you've been in a place where there was a stadium full of people shouting in unison. Unison. I'll get it right before the end of the sermon, I promise. You've been there. And you know what that feels like. So often these days, it seems like we see a mob of people shouting and they're angry. And what they're shouting is hate. Irreverent things, hateful things, horrible things. The scene that we see before us in heaven shows a vast host of people, a crowd unlike any that's ever been seen before. And they're all shouting. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation is something to shout about. When you've been rescued out of what these people have been rescued out of, when you have... Uh, avoided that time of terrible tribulation and you've been rescued from hell and we see about what that is. Yes, there's going to be a time when we're not ashamed to shout about it. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. For many years in my life, I sang out of what was known as the Heavenly Highways hymnal. Uh, I sang out of that hymnal for a long time before I realized that almost every song in it was about heaven. It takes me a little while to catch on to things sometimes. <laughs> I should have picked up on that heavenly highways hymnal. Yeah, but 70 or 80 years ago, there were a whole lot of songs written about heaven. Uh, two great wars, an influenza epidemic that wiped out millions of people around the planet. Great Depression. Had a lot of people thinking about heaven. It ought not take an influenza epidemic, two world wars, and a Great Depression to get us thinking about heaven. But it did. A lot of great songs came out of that and, and out of other difficult times. Probably the most popular song about heaven in, in our culture right now still is uh, the song I Can Only Imagine. Last year it was turned into a movie. Many of you may have seen that movie. I don't know, but uh, I know that the song itself went triple platinum. It charted on both the gospel side and the pop music side. And as of last month, uh, it was the only Christian song that had ever gone triple platinum certified. It's an amazing song. In many ways, it's become the theme song of a generation of young people, but I have to wonder whether people will still be singing, I can only imagine, even 75 years from now. 
I won't be around to find out. So when some of y'all, some of y'all get to heaven, well, you can give me an update if you want to. Look me up. Here's one I bet you know. There's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith we can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. If you know the chorus, sing it. In the sweet by and by we shall meet on that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by we shall meet on that beautiful shore. That song was written by Sanford Bennett and Joseph Webster in 1868. Over 140 years now, God's people have been singing that song. I'm not telling you that... Uh, uh, we don't have some great music being written today because we do have some great music being written today. We don't know how much of them, how many of them are going to be around. Uh, but let's not just throw away some of these songs that have been blessing God's people for over a century and sometimes even longer than that. They, they've stood the test of time for a reason. And uh, they're good too. You say, which one do you like the best, Brother Rich? I like them all. I do. As long as they're in spirit and in truth, it's got a biblical message, I, I can sing them. I like them all. Uh, I can't imagine. That's the reason why I brought the song up. I could not imagine living life without the hope of heaven. And so this morning, uh, we'll be considering just a few more things that the Bible gives us. We've considered other things in previous messages, but uh, today we'll be considering a couple more, just some things the Bible tells us about heaven. And we're going to focus our attention for a while on heaven's population. Heaven's population. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10 says, uh, Jesus speaking, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. In verse 14, he'll go on to say, Even so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. When we begin talking about the population of heaven, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that that's where God is. Time after time after time, Jesus spoke of our Father who is in heaven. He taught us to pray that way. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Time after time he said that. The Father in heaven. The Father in heaven. Our Father, your Father, your Father is in heaven. As we address our prayer then to God, we do so knowing that we are projecting ourselves into the place where he rules and reigns over the heavenly realm. Our prayer life by its very nature then is designed to lift our attention out of this world and all the things that relate to this world and cause us to think just a little bit more 
about the place where God is. That's heaven. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body that it might be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. I want us to see uh, the, the passage I have highlighted there. Our citizenship is in heaven. So when we think of the population of heaven, we also then consider that God is there, the Father is there, that Jesus is there, and that our citizenship is there. And that this passage tells us that we are waiting for Jesus to come from there. That means that Jesus is there too. When he comes, he'll transform our bodies to be like unto his body, just as he subdues the rest of the world. So, God the Father is in heaven. God the Son is in heaven. And all of us have our citizenship there. Now, I love the United States of America. Uh, I stand for the flag. Uh, I stand for the Pledge of Allegiance and put my hand over my heart. And most of the time, if somebody is singing the national anthem, I'll sing along. You might not can hear me, and that might not be a bad thing. But I love being a citizen of this country. I consider myself blessed to be a citizen of this country. <laughs> uh, but I'm even more blessed to be a citizen of heaven. I have a citizenship, you see. As much as I love being a citizen of this country, as much as I love being an Arkansan, as much as I love uh, being a, a, a citizen of this great community called Cabot or Ward or Austin uh, or wherever it is, whatever part it is that I live in or close to, kind of, I, I, I'm in one of those places where a lot of places kind of come together. Because just a little ways up the road, it's Austin. A little ways over here, it's Cabot. A little ways over that way is Ward and... Just down the road's Lone Oak, so we're kind of in the midst of all of that. I don't want to leave anybody out. Butlerville, how about, I mean, uh, and I know there's some more. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm glad to be a part of our community. To have to be a citizen of this great community is a good thing. But our citizenship in heaven, that, that's, that's what rules. We're only temporary residents here. Almost guests. Our primary citizenship, you see, is elsewhere. It's in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.18 Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the world word of reconciliation. Now then... We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I mentioned this to you this morning to remind you, not only are we citizens of heaven living on earth, but we have an official job here. We're ambassadors for Christ. We know what an ambassador is. We are ambassadors for Christ. As citizens of heaven then living on earth as ambassadors for Christ, it's no wonder that Colossians 3.1 tells us, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. God the Father is in heaven. God the Son is in heaven. 
Our citizenship is in heaven. And if we're obedient to the word of God, our affections are in heaven. Oh, we love our, our place. Whatever kind of place we have, we love it. We love our house. We love our neighborhood. We, we, we love, you've got a farm, you love your farm. So much about this world, we're pretty affection toward. But now the Bible calls us to set our affection on things above. What we have here is just ours for a little while. What we have there, we get to keep forever. Forever. Set your affection on things of the earth. In a sense, the Bible tells us that we're already there. That's odd. Well, look, read it for yourself, Ephesians 2 and 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, when you were saved, the Bible says that you were placed in Jesus Christ. And Christ took up residence in your life. So that both of those are true. You're in Christ if you're saved. Christ is in you if you're saved. And because Christ is in heaven, there's a sense in which we are too. Because we're in Him. Now, heaven's population at this time is primarily spiritual, not physical. Uh, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them, how many angels are there? 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. If I did the right math right, that's 100 million plus thousands and thousands. Uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews just simply put it this way, there is an innumerable host of angels. You ever kicked a fire ant mound? Some of you have, I know, very recently. Can you imagine sitting there trying to count all those critters? How many of them's in there? You can't get them to sit still long enough to count them. No wonder... The Bible says there's a hundred million or so and thousands and thousands more. That's a lot of angels. Did you know that? It's not like there's a half a dozen or so up there. There's a lot of angels. Now, ever since uh, the hit TV show, Touched by an Angel, came out. America has been pretty obsessed with angels, and Hollywood has made a lot of shows, and they've uh, made a lot of songs about angels. And most of the time, when Hollywood puts out something about angels, it's not true. In fact, you can pretty well put that down as a rule of thumb. If Hollywood's putting out something, it, it, it may not be completely true may not stand the test of Scripture. I have to admit, though, that uh, one, of my, one of my favorite movies uh, was City of Angels. Uh, I watch it every time it comes around. I, I try to go hunting afterwards to get my man card back, but uh, I do. <laughs> Nicholas Cage, Meg Ryan, uh, Sarah McLaughlin's In the Arms of the Angel is one of the most haunting songs uh, ever written. It's, 
I'm not saying that everything they come out with is 100% bad. Some of it's pretty entertaining and sometimes even thought-provoking. But what do the angels do? Well, Matthew 18 and 10 tells us, uh, uh, take heed, he said, that you not despise one of these little ones. And he's talking about children, little children. For he says, I say to you that in heaven their angels, did you notice that? Their angels. I always see the face of my father. One of the most frequent questions that I, that I get uh, over the years as a pastor is about uh, our concept of what we call guardian angels. Is that taught in the Bible? Well, not exactly. But this passage does come kind of close. It's about as close as it gets. It doesn't say that every one of us has an angel assigned to us. It does, however, I think, teach us that the angels are watching over us. And they're always on duty. They don't get tired and they never have to take a nap because they're spiritual beings. They can assume a physical form. What do they do? Well, obviously, a big part of what they do is praise God. But they're also ministering to Him and and ministering to the saints. Um, the angels obviously then have that single purpose. Jesus went on in Matthew 18, 14 to tell us that it's not the will of our Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And sooner or later in your life, you're going to be exposed to somebody who tries to tell you that God has made all the choices and He has just chosen that some people are going to die and go to hell and that's His will. That's not what Jesus said in this passage. It's not the Father's will that one of these little ones should perish. Many people have bought into the idea that people become angels after they die. Sorry, Clarence. It's a wonderful life. Uh, sorry, but that doesn't happen. That's not what the Bible teaches. Angels are spiritual beings. They are created by God. Whatever the number is, God knows it. He has created them as far as he know, we know. We're not, he's not continuing to create them. They're certainly interested in the salvation of lost souls. Remember, we're talking about the population of heaven. Well, God the Father is there. God the Son is there. We're citizens there. The population primarily at this time is spiritual. Angels are spiritual beings. They don't have a physical form. Also, the Bible tells us, obviously, that the spirits of those who have died in the Lord have gone on to be with Him. And those spirits, then, are there with Him. We know that the body does not go to heaven immediately when someone dies. Not right now. We'll take the body out and, and bury it or, or many other things that we do. But the spirit, the spirit goes to be with the Lord. And that's what's in heaven today. I read a poem recently about a man who said this. He said, I dreamed death came the other night and heaven's gate swung wide. With kindly grace, an angel ushered me inside. There to my astonishment stood folks I'd known on earth. Some I'd judged and labeled unfit and of little worth. Indignant words rose to my lips but never were set free. For every face I saw showed stunned surprise. No one expected me. (laughs) 
I thought, man, that's good. I like that. I don't have really any point with that. It was just too good not to share. <laughs> the angels as ministering spirits are there and the spirits of God's people are there and they wait the resurrection when they'll receive a new glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. We are going to receive a glorified body. And the information that the Bible gives to us about it is it will be like Jesus. Again, a very frequently asked question about heaven is, will we know one another? Will we look similar to what we look now? All I can say is, I hope I look a whole lot better. I do. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples saw Elijah and Moses, and they knew them. Though they had never met them. I don't see any indication that we're going to have to wear name tags in heaven. So apparently, not only are we going to know one another, we're going to know a lot of people we've never known before. We're going to know better. Maybe we'll be the same, but without the ravages of time and without the effects of sin. The same, but different. Will our relationships continue? The same but different. Jesus said there'd be no marrying or giving in marriage in heaven. We'll be a part of a family, but it's going to be the family of God. The same, but different. That's heaven's population. Now, heaven's occupation. What are we going to do up there? Revelation chapter 14 verse 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9 mentions the same thing. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Just pick you out a hammock. Is that what the Bible says? Uh, well, yes and no. You, you understand that uh, God did not create the world as a sinful place. You understand that. But when Adam and Eve sinned, the whole earth then came under the curse. And God said it. Cursed is the ground for your sake because of what you've done. Cursed. And the curse of God fell upon all the earth. So that God would say to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you'll earn your bread. You'll make your bread or eat your bread. By the sweat of your brow. In all of our lives, folk, we have been laboring against the curse. We have carried the weight of the curse all of our life. We carry it in our own bodies. We live around it all the time. It's like gravity. It's on us constantly. Everything about our life has been lived under the power of the curse. 
You want to talk about imagining. We can't imagine what it's going to be like when the curse is lifted off of us. And we don't have to labor under the curse anymore. And instead, our labor will take on a different perspective. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 15. Therefore, they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in the temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. We don't know all that God has in store for us. But I believe we'll be kept busy serving God. And that's enough for us to know. That we'll serve Him. That we will praise Him and worship Him. Without all of the effects of the curse. And that includes my favorite part of all. There'll be no more time. I can preach a sermon without worrying about what time it is. I can't wait. It's going to be a great time. Oh, uh, y'all just thought our services last forever. Just wait. Some of y'all aren't smiling. Oh, I believe God will even change. We can't imagine what it will be like. It will change our likes and our dislikes. And we'll no longer be laboring under the curse. You say, well, I'm I'm just not sure, Brother Rich. What is that curse all about? Well, I think the, the book of Haggai, the Old Testament book of Haggai, gave us a great picture of the curse. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Want to see the curse? There it is. We eat, but we're never satisfied with what we've eaten. We drink. We're never through drinking. You buy clothes, but you quickly grow dissatisfied with them. Wish you had something else. Wages just go out our pocket like there's a hole in them. My, don't they go away? a lot faster than they're made. There's the curse at work. The curse is on every part of our life. The joy of heaven is that the curse is gone. And we'll be able then to serve God, to work and and to honor Him and glorify Him without anything that holds us back now. I'm not sure what is the the, the best form of worship. We will forever, I guess, be divided over what we're supposed to do with our hands. Knees? You know, I don't know, but I know one thing. Sometimes things hinder our worship. Sometimes things hinder our service of God. We want to do more 
than we're able to do. Sometimes we just can't feel it. Sometimes sin is in the way. In heaven, all those things will be gone. And our worship is going to be joining in with that vast throng that's already there. Shouting, salvation belongs to our God. Thank you, God, for saving me. That's heaven. It's population. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, of course. That's how the omnipresence of God is, is played out in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The angels, God's people, that's the population of heaven. The occupation of heaven, serving God, free from the curse. Let's stand together.